0: Matthew chapter 10. Today we're going to carry on with the mission discourse that Jesus is giving us here. It really started in Matthew chapter 9. So today we'll look at Matthew 10, verses 16 through 42, which gives us the king's instruction. Now, as part of their training, remember, Jesus is training the apostles for their mission that Jesus is giving them. The apostles, uh, as a part of their training, needed to have an idea of what, what to expect. What obstacles were they going to incur and face along the way? Now, at this point, it's probably a good idea to remind you that if you're a believer, if you have put your faith in Christ alone, you have become a Christian, you've Received that second birth that we've just been singing about, then you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, you are a follower of Jesus Christ, and there is a great uh, truth here that is applicable to you as well. so what we 're going to see here is that most of of Matthew chapter ten contains instructions about what christ's disciples can actually e- expect while they're waiting for Christ to return. This passage does mention something about Christ's return. So what what can we, what can a disciple of Christ, a follower of Christ, expect while you're waiting for Christ's return? So we're going to look at these various uh, expectations and instructions that Jesus gives, and we'll just take them one by one and then look at the implications. That means... Uh, for those who of us who are a part of the church. Christ's first instruction coming here in Matthew 10 verse, verses 16 through 25 is that we are to expect opposition. Christ instructs us to expect opposition. Let's start reading in uh, Matthew 10, verse 16. He says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak, How much more will they malign those of his household? Well, the big picture here we see in these verses, verses 16 through 25, is Jesus is really dismissing any romantic notion of what it actually means to be a servant of the King of kings and Lord of lords. There's no romantic notion here in this passage, is there? His people are described like sheep, but... Notice their sheep amongst wolves. Innocent, defenseless sheep. Animals amongst uh, another set of animal that is very destructive and actually will try to kill the sheep. And so this means that the sheep are going to be constantly harassed and endangered. And for that reason, we need to be aware of several things here that this passage is pointing out to us. Number one. Your approach to others needs to be a combination of, win- of, of wisdom and innocence. That's what we see in verse 16. Jesus wishes his servants here to be wise as serpents. The idea is you're to be cunning, crafty, if, maybe even pragmatic. But yet, you're combining the, the wisdom of a serpent or a snake with the innocence of doves. Doves. Sheep are not to go and kill the wolves, (laughs) in other words, all right? Number two, again, there's things we need to be aware of here, but number two, we need to be realistic about how how others will treat you. You need to be realistic about how others are going to treat you. Jesus gives the illustrations here in this passage that, that courts and synagogues are not going to afford refuge to Christ's followers well you could apply that to to the courts of today you could you could even apply that to some religious denominations of today they're not going to they're not going to afford you refuge indeed jesus says they may be the places of the greatest threat and danger to you he says maybe even families will bring you danger siblings will have no reluctance about betraying their Christian brothers or sisters. And and it's not beyond the bounds of possibilities here, as Jesus says, that even parents and children may be betraying one another. As we see in verse 21. And then Jesus enlarges this idea to predict that you are going to be hated by all for My name's sake. So if Jesus, as Jesus says here, if Jesus suffered the indignity of being called Beelzebul, which means prince of demons. That was, a, that was a Philistine god, a false god, but it's often used in relationship to Satan, the prince of demons. If, if Jesus is called that kind of a name and suffered that kind of indignity, then his followers should not expect anything less. We're not exempt from those kind of trials. There's another thing we need to be aware of here as we as Jesus instructs us to expect opposition. He's, he says, in the midst of trials, you are to be free from anxiety. You're to be free from anxiety. In verse 19, He says, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. So trials and persecutions will come, Jesus says. Expect them. But you're not going to be left without help when those trials and persecutions come. On the one hand, Jesus uh, points out to us here, the Holy Spirit will help you. If you ever find yourself in a situation where you might be standing before some New Zealand court or maybe, maybe some other country's court, Jesus says the Holy Spirit will be there to help you in the midst of that. He says, on the other hand, you're, you're also to remember that you're walking in Christ's footsteps as the Master suffered, so we can expect to suffer as well. It's also interesting in this, this passage here, there's an important and very interesting Trinitarian perspective to these encouragements that Jesus is giving. And by tr- Trinitarian, you, you know Trinity, right? Three, you got three three persons, one God. Right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You, you see that aspect here. You got the Spirit who's gonna speak through God's people, but the, the scriptures say it's, it's, it is the Spirit of your Father. Capital F, Father. And the hatred will be for my name's sake. That's according to Jesus, what he, Jesus is saying there. So, what this is doing is it's, it's leading us in, in one aspect to the Great Commission of Matthew chapter twenty-eight, which of course promises the enduring presence of Jesus Christ through the Spirit. Well there's another thing we need to be aware of as Jesus instructs us to expect opposition. He's number four, you are to serve with the end always in view. Serve with the end always in view. Verse 22, Jesus says uh, after he says kind of bad Some bad words there. You will be hated by all, for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So you serve with the end in view, and that will make all the difference in your life. It's the one who endures to the end, Jesus says, will be saved. So what is the end here? What is Jesus talking about when he says the end? Well, Matthew says that it's the coming of King Jesus. You look at the context. Verse 23 talks about the Son of Man coming. Before Jesus left this earth, He said He would return. Of course, He hasn't returned yet, but we know He is. He always keeps His promises. And what does it mean to be saved when He says, the one who endures to the end will be saved? What what does that mean? Well, saved here doesn't mean that, that... these people and, and, and maybe you are going to be rescued from death. That can't be it. I mean, just think about what, what happened to Christ's apostles. <laughs> John was the only one who lived to be an old man. So that can't be what it's talking about. Those, it doesn't mean you're going to be rescued from death, but rather that they're going to be, they're going to experience the full blessings of salvation both now and in eternity. You realize salvation there's there's a present aspect to salvation, right? I hope you realize that. Uh, don't just think about eternity, but there there's there's blessings that come to a Christian here in in now. And so what this is doing is it's it's anticipating the teaching of of the latter chapters we're going to look at in, in uh, next year, in which the appearance of the Son of Man is shown to be the point at which all of history is moving toward the culmination of the kingdom. So, my friend, you're to face a lifetime of costly witness, always keeping your eyes on Christ's return. Always. That's the long view. Look to to that end, and then while you're doing that, you pray for enduring grace. Somebody returned a book this week. They read the Fox's Book of Martyrs. And I asked that person, what did you think? The Fox's Book of Martyrs has a lot of horrible deaths in there, all these Christians going through horrible things. What? What? Why, how were those people able to endure their sufferings? It was God's grace. So if you wonder, can, can you go through that and endure and still love Christ and glorify Him in the midst of your suffering? The answer is yes, you can. You have the same Holy Spirit they did. So what are the implications for the church today? There's many implications for the church today in, in this passage, but let me just highlight a few for you. Number one, the church must be ready for the wolves. And by wolves, I mean we're talking about opponents here. Opponents to Jesus Christ, opponents to the gospel. These are people who who not only reject, but, but may even physically abuse believers. Just read the first church history book, the book of Acts. The book of Acts, the first inspired church and only inspired church history book. The book of Acts, of course, testifies to this reality that the church needs to be ready for for wolves who may even physically abuse believers. So we, in the book of Acts, we have Stephen and James executed. The Apostle Paul received a lot of opposition. It, it just, the opposition just seemed to stalk him everywhere he went. He couldn't get away from it. So rejection is certain. That's what's to be expected. Christians will not be universally loved and appreciated. Some may. Some people may appreciate Christians, but most will not. Why is that? Well, I think Jesus gives the best reason in John chapter 3 verse 19, where Jesus said that darkness hates the light. In other words, evil hates good. Why? Jesus said, darkness hates the light because the the light shows, reveals their darkness, their, their facade, if you will. And so when the light of Christ shines through a Christian, it removes that facade and reveals their true nature, which they don't want to see it. So my friends, be ready. Be ready. The second implication is this. The church is the new family. The church is the new family, and so when you're rejected by a relative, uh, as Jesus is talking about here, whether that may be your father, mother or, or sibling or, or someone like that, you need to connect to the new family. God's given you a new family. Jesus identifies that new family as being his followers who do the will of his father in heaven. that's what Jesus says in Matthew 20 or, or sorry Matthew chapter 12 here on the screen for you verse 49. He says, stretch out his hand, this is Jesus, stretch out his hand toward his disciples. He said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my mother and sister and, or brother and sister and mother. And then notice what Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, verse 29. Jesus says this, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or lands, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Let me just highlight one little part there for you. Notice Jesus says, Yes, you may lose your blood relatives. But you gain far more. In fact, Jesus says a hundredfold. You receive a hundredfold. You have brothers and sisters. If you are, if you are trusting in, for, in in Christ alone for your salvation, you have brothers and sisters by the tens of thousands and millions around the world. Your family is 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 so vast. You'll you'll, in this life, you'll never get to meet them all. So the church is the new family. Number three, the third implication is this. The Holy Spirit will use every situation to enhance the gospel. He's going to use every situation. In fact, we, we, we have an example of that here. You know, Jesus says, don't, don't just lay your life down in verse 23. When the persecution comes, don't be an idiot. When the persecution comes, To you in your town, you flee to the next. (laughs) Don't be one of those martyrs who just says, Hey, here I am, burn me at the stake. No, you you flee to the next town, Jesus says. So so crisis is an opportunity, really, to watch the Holy Spirit work. He can turn any situation around and, and give strength to the church in the midst of those crises. So as verse 23 says, persecution is sometimes used by God to spread the gospel. So our task is to both endure the opposition and then remain firm for the gospel. Our fourth implication here from this passage is this. God's promises are especially with His people in their dangerous mission. So yes, we have a dangerous mission, but there are some precious promises that God gives us in the midst of the dangerous mission that we have. For example, with persecution, according to verses 19 and 20, comes the promise of the Spirit's presence. Oh, it doesn't get any better than that. You have the third person of the Trinity everywhere you go. Any situation, you are never alone. So if you're thrown in prison, the Holy Spirit's there with you. Another one is is actually a twofold promise in verses 22 and 23. So with persecution, we get a twofold promise. So this is this is a two for one deal here. This is even better, isn't it? So it says here that those who remain firm are going to be saved. And remember, I mentioned saved is referring to that the full blessings of salvation, both both here as as well as in eternity. But the other part, the other aspect of the twofold promise is that Christ is coming again. In other words, there is light at the end of the tunnel. There is light at the end of the tunnel, and and I'm referring to Christ. Well, Christ's instruction doesn't end there. We, We saw, first of all, Christ's first instruction was, you are to expect opposition. Number two, Christ's second instruction is this, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. In fact, if you're observing this passage properly, you'll notice Christ actually repeats that phrase three times. Do not be afraid. You know, we're, we'll, we'll read those here individually. And you say, well, why, why should I not be afraid? Why should you not be afraid? I mean, this is bad news. Expect opposition. Opposition's coming. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm shaking in my boots now. But Jesus says, do not be afraid. Why does King Jesus... Tell us not to be afraid. Well, he gives, he actually gives us three reasons. Every time he commands us not to be afraid, he gives us three reasons not to be afraid. Number one, in verses 26 and 27, is that the truth will triumph. Look at verse 26. Verse 26, we have the first, don't be afraid. So have no fear of them, those people who can kill you and throw you in prison and bring you before the courts and the synagogues don't fear them for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known for what i tell you in the dark say in the light and what you hear whispered proclaim on the housetops so the truth's going to triumph you may not feel like that right now but but it always will triumph in the at least in the end so the time's coming when Everything's going to be disclosed, Jesus says. So God's servants must boldly proclaim what Jesus has taught them. Boldly proclaim what Jesus taught them. Proclaim it from the housetops. They they did that in ancient Israel. Uh, If if a message needed to give out, you, you go up in a high place and just shout it out. Well, at the final judgment, those who have been persecuted, or I should say those who have persecuted Christ's followers, you know what's going to happen to them? The Bible tells us what's going to happen to them. They're going to be exposed for for who they really are. They're going to be exposed for the wicked person that they are. And then those who have been faithful to Christ are going to be exonerated and vindicated. And since this is the case, Jesus' disciples then shouldn't be afraid. If you're a disciple of Christ, if you're a follower of Christ, you shouldn't be afraid of, of people in powerful positions, whether that's an MP, a prime minister, or a judge, or, or a city council member, or, 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 or even somebody in a religious organization. You need to be bold in your public testimony for Christ. What Jesus was telling them in private, He, he tells them, you need to proclaim fully and widely, fully and widely. So number one, we see the truth will triumph. That's the first reason that King Jesus gives not to be afraid. The second reason King Jesus gives us not to be afraid is this, that the soul matters more than the body. Your soul matters more than your body. Look at verse 28. Verse 28. And, here's your second, do not fear. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The Greek word, Gehenna. So the soul, Jesus is saying, matters more than the body. And and for that reason, you should not fear. You're not to fear people. Why does Jesus say you should not fear people? Because a person, or a group of people, or a government, can only take your life. That's the only thing they can do. That's it. They can deal with your body, but they cannot touch your soul. That's untouchable to them. But there is one, it says here, there is one whom you should fear. And that's God. Because God is the only one who can touch your body and your soul. He's the one who can throw you into the eternal flames of hell. So you need to fear God, because He's the one who determines your final destiny. Your body's temporary, but your soul is permanent. You need to to be concerned more about your soul than you are about your body. And so this is the eternal perspective uh, that enabled many people to go through horrible persecutions and trials. And I love uh, love what Martin Luther declared as he was standing there at the Diet of Worms and, and he was expecting to be burnt at the stake for what he was going to say. But he said, as he was standing there before the emperor and and all of these religious leaders, he said, Here I stand, I can do no other. May God help me. Amen. And then the room erupts. And God ended up providentially saving his life. It was the eternal perspective that enabled Martin Luther to write the words of that famous Reformation hymn, A Mighty Fortress. Let me just point out some of the glorious words of that awesome hymn. He says, Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. That's the right perspective. That's the eternal perspective. So we see these two reasons why Jesus says we're not to be afraid. Number one, the truth will triumph. Number two, your soul matters more than your body. And number three, Jesus says don't be afraid because God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Look at verse 29. Verse 29, Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. (laughs) You see God's sovereignty there? Jesus is saying, you're not to be afraid as you testify for Jesus Christ, even before courts and governors and rulers and kings, because there's a God who reigns supreme over all of His creation. Nothing's going to happen to you that is not fully known by God. Even the hairs on your head are numbered. Even little birds, when they fall out of their nest, God knows about those things. God orders the events of His universe to happen. And and I'll remind you, why does God do what He does? He does everything for His glory and your good, as well as the good of others. So if God needs to put you in prison like He did with the Apostle Paul so that Caesar's household, some of Caesar's household becomes Christians, praise God. What is the implication? I, I only have one implication here, and it's this. You've probably heard this phrase before. It's not original with me. That the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In other words, the more the persecution, the greater the triumph of the gospel. You, again, read the, the, the only inspired history book, church history book, book of Acts, Acts chapter 8. Look at this, it's on the screen. Acts 8, verse 1 says this, Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. They were a bit cloistered in Jerusalem. A bit isolated in Jerusalem, keeping this wonderful good news in Jerusalem so God sends persecution so that the gospel would be spread. Praise God for that. I'll give you a modern day example of this. This is what's been happening in China. I'll just talk to Joe. When the persecution started, the church was small. Some, I've, I've read about what the leaders in China said about this, and they said when the, before the persecution started that the church was maybe only one to three million total in China. And now, we've, now we're 30-plus we're years since the persecution started in China, and the church is, is estimated to be now 70 to 100 million. Hard to estimate that, but that's what the leaders in China are saying. And, and you know what they, what, what they give as the reason for the spread of the gospel and for, for there being more Christians now in China than there ever has been? Suffering. That's the reason they give. Suffering. And I've even heard Christian leaders in China say, you Westerners, stop praying that that the suffering would stop. Don't pray that. We need it. In fact, they tell us, Westerners, you need to pray for suffering. So The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Christ gives another instruction here in this passage. Not only did he tell us to expect opposition, and number two, he tells us, don't be afraid. But number three is, he says, confess me openly. Confess me openly. Look at verse 32. Jesus says in verse 32, So everyone who acknowledges acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. That's not a literal sword. He's speaking figuratively there. Talking about conflict. Verse 35, But I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than Me is not worthy of Me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than Me is not worthy of Me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow Me is not worthy of Me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for My sake will find it. The basic idea there that Jesus is giving, He's saying, confess Me and do it openly. These verses focus on a person's relationship with Jesus Christ. So let me ask you, how how about you? How about you? Is your relationship focused on Jesus Christ more than any person or anything else? Are you remaining true to King Jesus or not? That's the issue. Jesus says that a person who would be his disciple must value him more than anything. Now, there's three things that Jesus actually mentioned here in this passage. Let me highlight them for you. Three things that are mentioned here. Number one, you must value Jesus more than a favorable judgment by this world's rulers. You must value Jesus' opinion and thoughts... More than the world's rulers, whether that's an MP, a a city councilor, the prime minister, or any other world ruler you can think of. You must value Jesus more than that. Number two, you must value Jesus more than your family. That's what he says in verse 37. You must not love father or mother more than Jesus. You must not love your son or your daughter more than Jesus. Number three, we see in verse 38 and 39, we must not, you must not value, you must, I should say, you must value Jesus more than your life. Even more than your life. Do you? You value Jesus more than your life. Would you be willing to die for Jesus' sake and for the gospel's sake? Now, the point of all these verses is the necessity for deciding for christ and then remaining faithful to christ until the end that's one of the things jesus is showing us here so so obviously then you can't just drift along through life and and expect that everything's going to turn out all right why why do i say that well basically this to fail to decide for christ and to live for christ jesus is saying not me jesus is saying If you fail to decide positively for Him, if you you fail to live purposely for Christ, Jesus says you're actually against Him. In other words, it means you are to perish. These are extraordinary teachings that Jesus is giving here. One of the things they're showing us is that uh, Jesus has a a great self-understanding of Himself. It shows his self-understanding. Yes, he was a man. <laughs> he was a man. There, there's, there's, read the book of Luke if you're not convinced about that, because Dr. Luke, being a doctor, is, is concerned to show that Jesus is a man. All the Gospels show that. But Jesus understood himself also to be God. He understood himself to be deity. He wasn't just man, he was the God-man. He's both in, in one person. Now, why is this important? Okay, Why is that important? Well, if Jesus is not God come in human flesh, well, <clears throat> again, this isn't original with me. Others have come up with the idea that if Jesus isn't God come in human flesh, then either we have an example of insanity going on here, or we have this very hideous attempt uh, that, that Jesus is trying to do to deceive people. So which is it? Either what he says is true, or Jesus is insane, or he's very evil and wicked. That's the three options. Which is it? Well, you say, well, what do I do with Jesus here? What what do you do with King Jesus? Well, there's at least three options, okay? If Jesus was insane, then ignore him. If Jesus was deceiving people, then we need to expose him. But if Jesus is who He actually claimed to be, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the God come in human flesh, Emmanuel, then you need to believe and obey Him. That's the options. Don't sit on the fence. What are the implications for the church? Number one, all followers of Jesus must stand up and be counted. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ. If you believe that you've put your faith in Christ alone, you believe you're a sinner, you've broken all the Ten Commandments, which every one of us has, and that Christ has paid the penalty for sin, He's conquered the power of sin, and one day the presence of sin as well. If you're trusting in Christ for that, then you're a follower of Christ. Some like to think of themselves as secret Christians, but... Secret Christians, Jesus says, are actually ashamed of Him. They're ashamed of Him. And Jesus says that's actually a form of rejection. If you're ashamed of Jesus and you don't want to stand up and be counted as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, then you're actually rejecting Him. So my friend, if you refuse to take a stand for Jesus in your daily life, whether that's at school or at your home or at the workplace or in the community somewhere else, If you're refusing to do that, if you refuse to acknowledge Him, God says you're going to face His judgment for rejecting Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that you're going to to be always one of these really bold, aggressive kind of people who who witnesses for, for Christ bold and aggressively every day. That's not the point. But, hopefully you're praying for divine appointments. Every day. I hope you're praying for divine appointments. And when God gives you divine appointment, He brings that one who's lost in darkness, the unbeliever who doesn't know Christ, who's never put their faith in Christ. Take the opportunity. It doesn't mean that all those people are going to come to Christ, but, but don't be ashamed of Him. Don't think, oh, no, I don't, I don't want my workmate to know that I'm a Christian. You know, if they ask you what you're doing on Sunday, take the opportunity, <laughs> right? Man, there's a great, there's a good one. Hey, so what are you doing on Sunday? Oh, I'm going to church. I love God and His Word and Jesus Christ. And by the way, we're studying the book of Matthew. How would you like to come along? In those situations, you need to at least make your your allegiances known. Do you do that at least? Do your workmates and your family and friends know that at least that, hey, you, you love Jesus Christ and His gospel? Do they know that at least? Hopefully. What are the implications for the church? Number two, following Jesus is costly. Following Jesus is costly. It may mean that you're rejected, as Jesus says, even by your closest friends and family members. You ever felt that? You ever felt that kind of rejection? I know it's not easy, okay? But let me ask you this. Is Jesus worth it? Who's more important in your life? Your closest family member? The closest friend? The one you might call your best friend? Is Jesus more valuable than your best friend? Of course he is. (laughs) Of course he is. Well, sadly, we got many shallow preachers that make it sound as if, you know, come to Christ. You know, conversion to Christ means the end of all of your problems. So come to Christ. He's going to solve all your problems. Some have said that if you become a child of the king, then then you're going to lead a life of royalty. Really? Some preachers are telling you today that you can have your best life now. Really? My friends, if you've ever heard that sort of rubbish, that's heresy. That That is going to damn people to hell. That's why it's heresy. Because the Bible says Jesus brought conflict. He says, I haven't come for peace. I've come for the sword. That's conflict. Jesus never said, you know, come to me and I'll make your bank account really big. No, he never said that. He said, you can expect opposition. But in the midst of that, don't be afraid. Yes, Christians are one day going to be royalty, but not until the king comes. What are the implications for the church? Number three, the true child of God belongs to a new family and has a new citizenship. The Bible says that Christians are foreigners and exiles in this world. But you know what? That's okay. That is okay. It should be okay because Jesus is to mean everything to you and to me. Even self is to be set aside as Jesus says you're to take up your cross which, by the way, involves self-denial and a willingness, even to die for Jesus, if necessary. The, the cross The cross wasn't a nice little symbol that you hang around your neck in Bible times. Okay, all right, you know, you, you see that sort of thing all the time today, right? You put, people put them on necklaces or, or in other various places. The cross was an ugly symbol. That's where people died horrible deaths. Jesus says. You need, you need to take up your cross and follow Him. That involves self-denial and even a willingness to die for Him. Well, there's a fourth instruction that Jesus gives and ends with here in this, this whole discourse on mission. In verses 40-42, to 42, Jesus says, You will not lack rewards. So He ends on a positive note here. You will not lack rewards. Look at verse 40. Whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he's a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person or a believer because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones... And that's, by the way, little ones is not just referring to infants here, okay? But the idea is here, it's referring to, again, to Christians. Whoever gives one of these Christians even a cup of cold water because he's a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. The last paragraph here of this particular section strikes a positive note, doesn't it? Jesus reflects on a person's relationship to him in terms of the person's reception or rejection of his messengers. How how do you receive his messengers, God's messengers? And what is surprising is that these verses speak of spiritual reward in in the midst of of a lot of bad news here. And and it's interesting that there's a sequence developed here in this paragraph it's an, an, Actually, it's a descending progression, it's, it, and I'll, I'll point this out to you here. Here's the four points this, of the, the descending progression. Number one, the one who receives Jesus, that's where it starts, because he's the best. The one who receives Jesus receives the Father who sent him. So if you receive Jesus, you get the Father. It's a complete package. Number two, the one who receives Jesus' preachers or his messengers, Whereas prophets are going to have a spiritual reward. And then number three, the one who receives a righteous man will receive a reward. And then the last one Jesus mentions here is the one who receives the least of Christ's disciples, other believers, will be rewarded as well. So Jesus is saying, you receive another believer, you, you do some what you may think some menial thing, giving a cup of cold water to another believer and you're doing that in Christ's name, Jesus says, you're doing it to me. You're doing it to me. You're welcoming Christ himself. Why? Because he lives in people through the Spirit. What is the implication for the church? I just have one implication here. Christians are never alone. Christians are never alone. Never. Not for one second. Not even for one nanosecond. So when you face terrible odds, maybe like the apostles were were Jesus telling them to expect, or worse, when you face terrible odds and the hostility of the world seems to be against you, you are not alone. You're never alone. The bride of Christ is never without her groom. Never. The bride of Christ, of course the church, The Bible says in 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 the book of Ephesians, Jesus loves the church and gave Himself for her. He's always with her. We see that concept again in Matthew chapter twenty-eight. He he tells to go and make disciples. I'm with you always, even until the end of the world. So the world does does uh, or what the world does to you is being done both to Christ and to the heavenly Father. God cares. He knows which is why He tells us in Peter to cast our cares upon Him, because He cares for us. Now, why is this this true? When someone does something to a believer, they're actually doing it to Christ and to God. Why, Why is that true? Why can we say that? Well, the Bible says you're one with them. You are one with them. Christ says there is a union You see that phrase often in the book of Romans, for example, in Christ, with Christ. You're with them. You are one with them. The union between Christ and God is actually extended to all believers. And so, you go out not just with Christ's authority, but you're actually going with Christ with you, and you have the Holy Spirit with you. You're not alone. I hope you find that comforting <laughs> that is a glorious truth that we need to meditate on more i'm sure uh, i'm sure i'm sure we could all meditate upon that truth more and, and you you'd, you'd understand a l- probably a little bit more as we meditate on that why men and women and children throughout throughout church history have been able to go through horrible persecutions and afflictions and trials You you might ask the question, how can I do that? How can I endure such persecution? How can I endure it now? You might be wondering, maybe you're thinking of something that could happen to you in the future. How how can that be possible? Because you're not alone. As men and women sit in prisons, even today, in various countries around the world, they're not alone. Christ and the Spirit are there with them. And as they see even family members executed before their very eyes, how can they endure? Because Christ is there with them. They're looking for the heavenly city. They, they know that this world is not their home. They know they're exiles and foreigners on this world, and so they're, they're looking for Christ and the kingdom to come. Something that's far greater. My friend, never forget that you, if you're a Christian, you're not alone. So my friend, if you're not, if you're a non-Christian, if you have have never decided for Christ, I mean, a positive decision for Christ, that you're going to hate your sin, all of it, and you're going to believe in Christ. If you've never done that, then you're on the you're on the you're on the bad side here. Okay, you're the one Jesus is the real bad side. I I couldn't say it bad enough. Jesus saying, Judgment Day is coming. Are you ready? Are you ready for that Judgment Day? If you've never accepted Christ, then you are alone. And what that one preacher wrote about, your best life now, this is your best life now. If you're an unbeliever, well, my friend, if you're a believer, if you put your faith in Christ alone, this is not your best life now. <laughs> the best life Is yet to come. My friends, do you believe Christ's instructions here? My friends, believe what Christ says. He knows better than anyone. The King of Kings and Lord of Lords has instructed us, encouraged us with what we are to expect. But in the midst of this, don't we have some wonderful promises? Some glorious truths? There is reward yet to come. Don't focus on the here and now. Focus on God, on Christ, the Spirit, His promises, His Word, the Kingdom, eternity. Don't lose sight of all that. If you you keep your eyes focused on that, you can handle anything that's going to come your way.